uh, are there enough of those papers? I'm afraid there are not enough of them to get around to everybody. There are two sides to that, so you may need to share them. There are two sides to that. On the one side is just a breakdown of dispensational revelation uh, and uh, the uh, time elements related segments of scripture which are covered. But on the back side, I've attempted to give some idea of the duration of those dispensations. I'm afraid that one of the reasons that dispensational teaching has come into such criticism, and I believe justly so, is because an impression has been left that when God has uh, done with one dispensational period, that it's ended totally, and he picks up another, and that isn't true at all. And as a matter of fact, none of them, save innocence, are ended. It is obvious that man is no longer innocent. But in the case of each of the rest of them, they always progress through until the end time. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, these things, that is the Old Testament scriptures, were written for our admonition and learning upon whom the ends of the ages have converged. I've tried to reflect that there. That everything that God ever did in the past focused in on what he's doing right now in the church. The church is, in other words, the ultimate end of the Lord. It was God's purpose in the church to take out a bride for his son. And everything else that he did had a view toward doing that. It is not to say that what God starts he does not continue with. His redemption for Israel was a permanent redemption. God is not through with Israel, and Israel is going to be restored. Israel, however, is the wife of Jehovah through whom he brought the son for whom he purchased the bride. So the whole intent of God was at the outset to call out of the Gentiles a bride for his son. Acts chapter 15. All right. God is choosing out of the Gentiles a people for his name. <clears throat> I don't think then that I finished completely making comparison with these. Yes, ma'am. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, sorry for sound. So God did when he told the Israelites not to do the Gentile bride. Exactly. Precisely. Because by taking, uh, remarkable the Lord is, isn't he? <laughs> by, by taking a Gentile bride, then Israel was frustrating their own purity. And uh, he had to point out to them that it was going to be the unusual thing that God was going to do. The abnormal thing was what God was going to do to get a bride for his son. Hence, I think we cited some of the illustrations that are found in the Old Testament, like Joseph and Moses and so forth, who when they were banished from their brethren, took a Gentile bride. Well, same situation for the Lord Jesus. And why then in Romans 11 does Paul tell us, to do that, or tell us that he did that? He said he has... Um, uh, set Israel aside and chosen out the Gentiles in order that he might provoke them to jealousy. Yes. In order that he might provoke Israel to jealousy. And by provoking them to jealousy, cause them to return themselves to the shepherd and bishop of their souls, in Peter's words. Uh, now, uh, Israel's remaining as a pure line then, or God commanding Israel not to intermingle with the Gentiles, had a twofold reason. And number one, because he was not ready for that yet. And number two, because Israel had to remain a sanctified people. Uh, the reason that Abraham sent his servant to uh, the house of his fathers to get a bride for his son Isaac was because by, by intermingling at that time, he picked up all of the evil traits that went with the Gentile kingdoms. And God was out to avoid that. He wanted to keep them from being corrupted. You even have this in Israel later on in the book of the prophet Hosea, for example. God said that uh, to... Uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, he said, uh, Ephraim, your brother, that is the northern ten tribes. Uh, Ephraim is a term used to the whole of the northern ten tribes. He said, Ephraim is joined to his idols. Let him alone. Stay away from him, in other words, because you get corrupted as he was. And then later on, that was precisely what happened. He said, Ephraim caused his brother to fall into sin. Ephraim led Judah 
into their sin and corrupted them. So God is trying to maintain a purity of line. That's uh, a primary thing. But that uh, Israel was in a unique position uh, before the Lord as the wife. Uh, there's you know, a lot of things coming on here. I'm trying to avoid saying all of it, but I'm going to say this anyhow. Uh, look with me to, to Leviticus, just as an example. <clears throat> I think chapter... Um, yes, 20. To see this distinction. That it is very important to us, I think, that we understand Israel's relationship to Jehovah God. Did I sketch this out for you? I don't remember if I mentioned this or not. But the Lord, you understand, of course, that when the King James writes the word LORD in all caps that it is Jehovah, or Yahweh, if you would. And the Lord is the husband, and the wife is uh, Israel. All right? The Christ is the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. The, the uh, objection has been raised, how can the church be both the bride of Christ and the body of Christ at the same time? Uh, that is an unfortunate objection. It could not be otherwise, could it? Uh, the apostle, in, in dealing with the relationship of husband and wife in Ephesians 5, uh, declares that uh, the uh, husband is the savior of the body, the wife is the body of the husband. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It could not have been otherwise. I see you have a problem with this. All right, now, uh, if for some of you this is perhaps repetitious, but just let's note anyhow, in any Oriental wedding then, you always have uh, a picture of the household of God and the household of God the family of God, the family of God is a broader scope, the household of God is a more narrow scope, is broken down in the same way. Um, we have for our father, to begin with, Abraham and Israel, uh, the, uh, uh, the bridegroom again, Jesus, and his body, the church, as the bride. Then we have a best man. Somebody tell me who he is. See, repetition is price knowledge, isn't it? The best man is the friend of the bridegroom, Oriental always referred to him as the friend of the bridegroom. And who is that? I spell John. John Baptist. And you have someone to give the bride away. Who does that? No one remember? The Apostle Paul. I've spouse you one husband, and I might present you a chaste virgin to Christ. And then on beyond that, you have the, uh, the uh, friends, or I'm sorry, the uh, uh, relatives of the uh, uh, family. And... Uh, you can go out from the seed of Abraham. We don't have time to pursue all of that right at this point. We'll talk about that at another time. But you go out from Abraham, and you have the household born out of Abraham or the various lines that come out of Shem. And then beyond that, you have the guests, which are redeemed Gentiles, and so on you go with it. Um, the, the whole structure then of the household of God, and the, I'm sorry, the family of God is the broader scope, and then the household of God is parallel to the oriental situation. So if you want to examine how God is dealing in the world, take a good long look at the house of Abraham, and you'll get a view of precisely how God is building the new heaven and the new earth and those that are directly related to him. Okay, Leviticus 20. Did that ever get you there? All right, Leviticus 20. Now these are laws concerning morality, and they give us a, a reflection. We were talking about the clean and the unclean the other day. Well, <clears throat> these are more of those laws, not in this case the clean and the unclean, but the laws of morality, and they give us a reflection of what God is doing in redemption. Uh, let me start with verse 10, if I may. The man who committeth adultery with another man's wife, even who, who, he who committeth adultery with, another, with a neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, 
If you bring that over into a spiritual connotation, what's suggested? James says, you adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that friendship with the world is enmity against God. So adultery then in the natural is a figure of adultery in the spiritual. Truth? So what is uh, the uh, harlot woman a reference to? But spiritually adulterous religion. Yes? Revelation 17. All right, move down with me then, please, to verse uh, 14. Uh, if a man take a wife and her mother, it is wickedness. They shall be burned with fire, both he and they, that there be no wickedness among you. Well, the wife reflects uh, uh, the church and the priest, uh, the Lord Jesus, who would take the wife, and the mother, Israel. And God says you can't take both of them. Now back up with me, please, to uh, chapter... Yes, what chapter do I want? 20, 21, yes, I was thinking I was going to 18. Chapter 21 of Leviticus. And this is the law concerning the priests and their marriage. <clears throat> Seem to be having trouble talking this morning. Verse 12. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 13. And he that is the priest shall take a wife in her, her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a profane or harlot, these shall he not take. But he shall take a virgin of his own people as his wife. Now, um, observe the Lord Jesus as the priest before God who is about to take a wife. Israel is a widow. Israel is a divorced woman. Israel is profane. Israel hath played the harlot before God. And for that reason, God has put her away and given her a writing of divorcement. Again, that's what the prophet Hosea is all about, is the restoration of the adulterous wife to Jehovah. So the Lord Jesus, as the high priest of God, if not one jot or tittle of the law is to fail, cannot take Israel to wife, can he? But he must take uh, a wife out of his own people. That's very important. We'll talk about that when we come to the sovereignty of God. And who is a virgin? And how does uh, the Apostle Paul describe the church? He said, I've espoused you to one husband, and I might present you a chaste virgin to Christ. Yes? So that uh, the Lord Jesus, in coming into the world to take this wife, could not take that wife from Israel. He had to take that wife from the Gentiles. But out of the Gentiles, it had to be Gentiles who were related to him. Now, I'm just very hesitant to start on this now, but I'm going to mention it anyhow. That's why I mentioned Abraham here. I'm going to drop a bombshell on you and let you think about it for a while. Will that be all right? I used to preach, if I may say this. Uh, I used to preach uh, very emphatically that everybody comes into this world as the devil with the devil for their father, and that by new birth the devil ceases to be our father and God becomes our father, and that isn't true. And as a born-again believer here this morning, the devil never was your father. Abraham was your father. And by new birth, God becomes your father. But you come into this world the child of Abraham. And you're not necessarily the child of Abraham just because you believe God. Uh, you, know, you know why you believe God? Because you're a believer. Yeah, that's right. That's why you believe God, because you're a believer. So you come into this world out of the seed of Abraham, and there is an earthly seed of Abraham. You'll get this all again when we come to this, but there's an earthly seed of Abraham which is reflected in the sand which is on the seashore, and there's a heavenly seed of Abraham which is reflected in the stars which are in the heavens. God said to Abraham, I'll make your seed as multitudinous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heavens. This references Israel. 
and this references the church. And everybody that comes into this world uh, comes into this world either uh, born um, as a child of the devil or a child of Abraham. All right, now it is in that sense then that Jesus is taking a bride to himself out of his own people. Do you follow that? Out of his own people. They're already his. Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul said, Jerusalem which is above is the mother of us all. Hmm? Mother of us all. That's really what John chapter 3 is all about. I'll let you think about this till we come to the sovereignty of God. All right. That's what John chapter 3 is all about. Except a man be born... Not again. Now, that's a great truth, but it isn't taught in that passage. And I'll tell you, you feel like you touch the golden calf, Brother Jack, when you talk about this sometimes. But uh, new birth is not uh, the subject of John 3.3 or John 3.7. Being born from above is. Being born from above is interpreted as new birth, but it doesn't talk about new birth. John 3.5 is new birth, except man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That's new birth. But the term new birth is not used by John. As a matter of fact, the term born again is only used two times in the New Testament Scripture. And they're both of them in 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3 and following, who has begotten us again. There's the word. Anaganao, born again. Unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the second time in 1 Peter 1, 23 or 24. 23, 24, I think, but it's one of those verses. Uh, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The word which is used in John 3 is not anagana, oh, it's anathon, born from above. It's quite different. It's the same words which Luke uh, uses, for example, when he says, I've had perfect understanding of light, writing the gospel uh, of Luke. I've had perfect understanding of these things from the beginning. The word is from above, anathon. The revelation came from God. Um, we'll talk about that when we come to it. I feel like I'm putting everything off into the future. Uh, more discussing. So let's get back to something we can talk about right now, all right? Um, it is important then that the believer understands <coughs> that everything that God is doing right now, He's doing in preparing that bride for His Son. And in preparing the bride uh, for the Son, He intends to present her to Himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now, I think we got as far as the promise in our talking about these dispensational developments. Did we not? I gave you those papers a moment ago. We come to the dispensational promise and we noted to you that this is the place that God makes covenant with Abraham, which covenant is an eternal covenant. It makes reference to the land, the people, and the seed which was going to be born out of him. And in thy seed, God said, shall all of the peoples of the earth be blessed. It makes reference to the birth of Messiah and the covenant then that is established with Abraham is an eternal covenant, a covenant of blood. And there's the word I gave you at the outset, the word bereath, which means blood cutting. And there is no covenant made which is not based on blood. There may not be blood shed at the moment the covenant is promised, but it is based on blood. And everything that we enjoy today then, we enjoy because we are born out of Abraham. And the promises of Abraham have transferred to us because we are the children of Abraham by faith. Now, with reference to the covenant that God made to Abraham, remember that God has bound himself to honor that covenant with all of the seed of those with whom he made that covenant. So if he made the covenant with Abraham, he has bound himself to honor that covenant with all of Abraham's children. In the same way, as I illustrated to you earlier, David was responsible to honor the covenant which he made with Jonathan, with Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. You remember that? So that when Mephibosheth, who was really uh, out of the line of Saul, 
um, by normal uh, monast uh, monastic, uh, uh, one man reigning. Come on. Yeah, uh, yes. Uh, monarchy understanding, he was condemned to death. Wouldn't he have been? It's normal for any oriental king to destroy all the seed royal of any other uh, dynasty that came before him. So really, Mephibosheth should have been condemned to death. And you can see why he was hiding then. Because he thought if David knew where he was, he'd surely kill him. It was just a normal thing for another king to do. But when David then sent Ziba and the servants, his servants, to find uh, uh, Mephibosheth and brought him before David, he thought he was being brought before David to die. But in fact, the reason David went out to get him was he was bound before God to honor the covenant which he'd made with Jonathan. So instead of killing him, he exalted him as a prince in the land. And what it, you remember when uh, David was inquiring, he said, Are there any yet left of the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of God for Jonathan's sake? Precisely. Now, just a little quick history here. I didn't mean to pursue this, but to illustrate. Uh, you remember that when David in uh, uh, 2 Samuel, I believe it's chapter 4, was taking the city of Jebus, uh, the Jebusite says David can't come in here unless he takes away the halt and the lame and the blind. The idea being, well, David didn't even strong enough to take away those that are feeble in the land, much less destroy the rest of us. The next passage goes on to say, now the halt and the lame and the blind are hated of David's soul. Now, that's a remarkable statement, isn't it? Now, don't jump on David with both feet until you understand that to a Hebrew, anyone who has a physical blemish of that kind was not permitted to come into the house of the Lord. A priest could not minister before the Lord if he was halt, lame, blind, and various other physical deformities. He was not permitted to come before the Lord. That's because the priest was a figure of the church of Jesus Christ. And the church is without spot or blemish or any such thing. Do you see that? And the figure has to be maintained. Am I losing any of you? So David hated the halt and the lame and the blind. Now, I do not mean to speak to the character of David. I'm just pointing that out. It's very important to us. Well, this next passage goes on to say then, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. Then you can understand when they came before David saying, well, yes, this one you're looking for who is of the house of Jonathan is a fellow named Mephibosheth and he's in Lodibar in the house of Amuel. But David, there's something you ought to know about him. David said, what is it? They said he is lame in both feet. So the obvious reaction of David should have been, don't bring him in here. Hmm? But you remember what David said? Care not for it, bring him in. Now, Mephibosheth then very beautifully stands for the believer and David for the grace of God who is admitting him regardless of his problem because of the covenant. Are you following? The covenant which God has made in Christ in our behalf totally undoes any, uh, undoes any uh, inequalities or, uh, give me the word, inadequacies in us. A word in this connection, in uh, the 25th verse of, of Romans, chapter 3, 24th verse, I'm sorry, Romans 24, therefore being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God made a covenant with his son by the blood of his son, and now on the basis of that blood we are justified freely. Well, the word freely, is the reason I'm citing the verse, is the word which in John chapter 15 and verse 25 is translated without a cause. They hated me without a cause. The same word translated without a cause is the word here being translated freely. So may we reword it then? 
therefore being justified without a cause. God could not find one good reason to justify us. And that's what he was after. That way, he could do it, you see, altogether on his own merit and just because he wanted to. Did you ever say that to one of your children when they ask you why you did something? I just wanted to. I'm your father and that's my right. I just wanted to. And so people will complain uh, to God why he does things the way he does. He just wanted to. And God does everything he does out of the righteousness of his own character. God does not do things because they are righteous. They are righteous because he does them. You all following that? Otherwise, righteousness would be above God. Do you see that? If God does things because they're righteous, God is acting to something, acting because of something that's outside of him. Righteousness is righteous because it's God. And he acts on that basis. And that's the whole message of Ephesians chapter 1 for that matter. God does everything according to the counsel of his own will. He just wanted to. And that in itself makes it right. Hmm? Has the world ever suffered for God doing after the counsel of his own will? I dare say not. So God has justified us without a cause. He first arranged the situation so that we would understand that there is absolutely no thing in us which would cause God to either desire us or respond to us, and then he does it purely out of grace. And if we do not see that, we do not understand the message of grace. Grace is God doing for us what we did not deserve, could not deserve, what we couldn't do for ourselves, and if we could, we wouldn't do for ourselves. That's another subject in itself. So the promise then is based on a covenant which God makes with the seed of Abraham on the basis of his own righteousness and his grace imparted, looking for absolutely nothing in return from us. Now, following promise then came law. And Paul tells us that the law was added because of transgression until the seed should come, Galatians chapter 3. The law was added because of wickedness. God was still allowing man at this point to move under human government and by his own conscience. That's why on the backside we noted you that all those principles still follow through. He still has a conscience, but the conscience tends to be defiled or seared, and therefore God institutes human government. But still, as God made man upright, he seeks out many inventions, he figures out another way to do his wickedness. So law is instituted to maintain a level of righteousness, but it is given uniquely to the people of God. We indicated a few illustrations of that last week. <clears throat> law was intended then, <clears throat> pardon me, to be an illustration of the character of God. Law brought God out to men. Grace brings men to God. There's a big difference. Yea? So as law is bringing God out to men, the law is prophesying the character of Christ. Those of you who have been with us in our uh, Old Testament survey class will remember that we dealt with this with reference to the tabernacle. And we indicated, was it in this, wasn't it in this class, we made some uh, comments about the uh, person of Christ as he is viewed in that tabernacle. I think we did in our first class. That the tabernacle is, in fact, a description of the physical body of the Lord Jesus and that the Hebrew words, which are translated sides with regard to these two sides of the hanging of the outer gate, is shoulder. That the Hebrew word translated side with regard to the sides of the sanctuary, the 20 boards, is the Hebrew word for rib. And that the word translated side with regard to the six boards of the two sides westward, three boards here, three boards here, is the Hebrew word for thigh. And so you have drawn the body of a man. 
And this white outer hanging that went all the way around the tabernacle makes reference to his righteousness. It is a white robe in a figure, the robe of his righteousness, the law of God. Psalm 40 is in his bowels here in the uh, holiest of that sanctuary, and on you can go with that. So that God then, by the law, is prophesying the coming of Christ. John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the Word became flesh, and literally the Word is tabernacled among us. I don't know if the New American translates that way or not. The, he, uh, the Greek word is tabernacle, not dwelt. All right, so the law then, having prophesied, the Lord Jesus must come fulfilling that law. Otherwise, he violates the covenant. John chapter 10. Uh, he that enters in by the door of the sheepfold is the shepherd of the sheep. There are three doors in John 10, not just one. The door of the sheepfold, the door of the sheep, and the door. You got all that? The first door of the sheepfold is not Jesus. The door of the sheepfold is the Levitical law through which Jesus must come. He must, in other words, fulfill all of the requirements of the law in order to be, in fact, the true Messiah which God has called for. So he comes fulfilling that law, and to him, Jesus said, the porter opens. You remember that? Who's the porter? You remember the porter? Porter's the Holy Spirit. He's the one who keeps the fold, isn't he? He's the one who has responsibility to keep the fold. He's the one who seals what is God's. So when the Messiah, the shepherd of the sheep, comes, the porter opens to him, and he goes in, and he calls his own sheep by name. Then he says, I'm the door of the sheep. And he goes on with a great discourse about hearing his voice. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and etc. So that the door of the sheepfold, the Levitical law through which the Lord Jesus must come, required that he fulfill everything that the law declares. And I just read you a portion of Leviticus which he had to fulfill. So he could not come and take a bride out of Israel. He wrought redemption for Israel, his blood was efficacious for Israel, but the bride that he's calling out was not Israel. And for that reason, Israel was set aside in order that he could call out that bride. And after he's called out that bride, then he returns again to restore Israel. You all following with me now? Some of you look a little blank. I'm not sure I've got you. So the law prophesied then the coming of the Lord Jesus. And the covenant which God made in the law was a temporary covenant to give manifestation of his own character, righteousness, and purpose. Heard a fellow on the radio make the comment one time that God was experimenting with Israel. I thought, how wretched. Experiment? God? Does he not know what he's doing? Must he try something to find out how it'll come out? Known unto the Lord are all of his works from the beginning, God said. Uh, it's remarkable. I, that just absolutely staggered me. The law was not an experiment. It was a revelation. It was a manifestation of the righteous character of God. Law brought God out to men. And from that then... The cross was the fulfilling of the law. If you fulfill a debt, do you owe it anymore? Hmm? No, you certainly don't. If you fulfill a debt, you don't owe it anymore. And the debt of the law is paid in the cross. And by that cross then, the blood of the covenant is sprinkled in the heavenlies, the blood of the Lord Jesus, which could take away sin. And as a result of that now, God has ministered grace to us. Now, with regard to grace, look at, with me please to John 1. Yes, the third door is Jesus also, yes. 
the, the door of the sheepfold is the door of redemption and the door is the door of communion and fellowship. He said they go in and out and they find pasture in that door. Yes, that's the door of fellowship, communion. Sorry, thank you. The door of, re the, door of the law, the door of redemption, and the door of fellowship. Just to pick up some context, I want to begin with verse 14 of John 1 and pick up the statement made here with reference to uh, the Lord Jesus being the tabernacle of God among us. John uh, chapter 1, verse 14 following, And the Word was made flesh. More literally, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You all with me? John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word was uh, became flesh literally and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. By the way, just as a sidelight, have you observed how that Jesus dealt with people in this manner? For example, uh, Nicodemus, classic illustration. Nicodemus uh, wasn't ready for grace. He needed to hear the truth. And the truth was that you've got to be born right. And that really was a shock to Nicodemus because Nicodemus thought he had everything under control. And there wasn't anything he couldn't do that, hadn't been, or that had to be done that he hadn't done already. And, Nic and Jesus dropped bad news on him. Uh, Nicodemus, you've got to be born from above. How can these things be? Are you a teacher in Israel and you understand this, uh, Nicodemus? And we'll discuss that in due course also. Uh, so he had to give Nicodemus the truth before he could ever give him grace. But now take a, a, in contrast to that, the woman at the well. The woman at the well already knew the truth. So what did he give to her? Grace, indeed. He is full of grace and truth. And you'll never appreciate grace until you understand the truth. As a matter of fact, you can't appropriate grace until you understand the truth. Verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried, saying, This was he whom I spake, that he cometh after me. He who cometh after, cometh after me is preferred before me, because he was before me, preexistence of the Lord Jesus. And of his fullness, this is the verse I'm after now, and of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. Now, that, does that mean anything? The wording there is unfortunate. And grace for grace, if you would render the Greek terms properly, it would render this way. Even... Uh, the word and there is a Greek word chi it can be translated even and but also it's a very fluid word even grace instead of of grace alright and we of his fullness have all we received even grace in its fullness instead of grace in portions do you follow? So that God is under uh, the, uh, uh, has because of the satisfaction of Christ and the sprinkling of his blood, blood given us the fullness of grace, whereas under the law they only had portions of grace. This is precisely what Paul is speaking to in Romans chapter 5 when he said, where sin did abound, grace did superabound or much more abound or overflow the overflow as one brother put it. So the fullness of grace has become ours now because of the satisfaction of Christ. Now, there's never been a time when anybody was ever justified except by grace. Nobody. From the days of Adam to the uh, consummation of all things, nobody was ever justified except by grace. So the reason he emphasizes this then is because not only now are we going to be justified by grace, and now I give you a sidelight of what we're coming into in the next hour, Lord willing. By the way, watch my break time there, would you? But that God is going to give us the fullness of grace, which includes the salvation 
of God. Under the Old Covenant record, they had justification. Now we have salvation. The justifying grace of God made me fit for heaven. The salvation of God brought heaven to me. Justification put me in right relationship with God. Salvation brings God the Holy Spirit to dwell in me. They never had that in the Old Testament. All right, I want to give you five different things. There are more than this, but that uh, you might pursue, and I will give you some passages that go with it with reference to the Old and the New Covenant. How can I put this up here? Maybe? Several verses that I'd like to just dictate to you, if I may, <clears throat> reference to the covenant old and new. All right, first with reference to the blood. With reference to the blood. Under the old covenant, these are only a few of many that might be cited, give you something to make comparison and contrast. Uh, under the uh, old covenant, we had a kephar, and what's that word mean again? Or kipper, if you would. All right, it is a covering. Uh, it translated atonement. The kephar, or kipper, or Kippur, I don't know who you're talking to. Um, uh, first, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. Hebrews 10, 4. And contrast that then with Hebrews 9, 14 under the New Covenant. And as with 9, 14 also, uh, 28, I don't leave that out. 10, 24. 10, 12, I'm sorry. Hebrews 10, 12. Hebrews 9, 14, 28, and 10, 12. Leviticus 17.11 and 1 John 2.2. I'm going to get these out to you now. All of these make reference to what the blood did under the Old Covenant, the blood of bulls and goats, and what the blood of Christ accomplishes under the New Covenant. And some serious consideration of these, and we'll make reference to a few of them as we have time, but some co serious consideration of these, I think, would, uh, if our heart is open, wipe out a lot of the regrettable concern that some believers seem to carry around about the, uh, wondering whether or not they're going to make it. Hebrews 9.9 9, in contrast to Hebrews 9.12 and 10.17. 9.12 and 10.17. Now, uh, before we proceed to the next one, let me uh, I'm going to watch my time here. Um, cite a few of these verses, if we could, please. Go with me to Hebrews very quickly. And we'll not labor at length with any of these, just to cite them. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4, verse we've made reference to a couple of times before. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body thou hast prepared for me. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Hebrews 9, 14 and 28. Verse 14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then verse... Uh, 28, so Christ was once offered to bear the sin of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time, literally apart from a sin offering, unto salvation. In other words, the sin offering is already finished, and he comes the second time unto salvation. Now Hebrews 9, or 10, 12. Hebrews 10, 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God. You remember that under the Old Covenant, the high priest who ministered in the tabernacle had no furniture on which he could sit. He was not permitted to sit down because there was no finished work. There was a seat, though, there, was there not? The mercy seat. Who sat on it? God, precisely. The marvelous thing about that is now that the Lord Jesus is himself sitting on the mercy seat. 
The reason Aaron couldn't sit on the mercy seat is because he was compassed with infirmity. Uh, just to as a, uh, an illustration of that, you remember Job cried out, "I would that there were a day's man who could plead with man as a man, or plead with God as a man pleads with his neighbor." He said, "I wish there was some kind of a mediator who could stand between God and man, and who could lay his hand on man and lay his hand on God at the same time." And there was no one. God could see how we felt, but He could not feel how we felt. Y'all out there? So that what does Jesus provide? He provides one who can feel how God feels and feel how we feel at the same time. And because of that now, the Lord Jesus has entered into the heavenlies and he has sat down with the Father on the mercy seat at his right hand. A man in the glory on the mercy seat who can feel as I feel and feel as God feels at the same time, who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities, Paul said. Now that's a finished work, you see. He is resting, which is one of the messages of the epistle to the Hebrews, that God has brought his people into rest. <clears throat> All right, Hebrews 9, 9 then, under the old covenant, then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will. I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong chapter. That wasn't right when I started to read. Uh, 9, 9, which was a figure for the time then present, speaking of the tabernacle and all of its service, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices which could not make him that did the surface perfect as pertaining to the conscience. It could not bring us into any kind of spiritual maturity. But verse 12, in contrast to this, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once in the holy place, that is in the heavenlies, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Is there anything you can add to that, beloved? Well, I assume by your silence you can't think of anything. That's right. Verse 17 of chapter 10 then, further under the new covenant, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. You would be surprised at the number of believers who don't believe that. They are unbelieving believers. They are practical infidels. They're going to go to heaven in all of their misery. The tragedy of the child of God is that he refuses to acknowledge the fact that God has wrought in the person of his son permanent and eternal redemption in his behalf and God no longer imputes our sins to us. Am I allowed to illustrate that? <clears throat> it's your nickel. I'm going to. <laughs> it is interesting to me that uh, if, if you, for example, uh, uh, see a man stealing automobiles, <clears throat> again, remember, you don't just put the guy's feet and hands in jail, do you? You can put the whole body in jail. And when he comes before the judge, to whom does the judge talk? The hand that turned the key? The head, precisely. So the head is responsible for everything the body does. Well, is that right? The head is responsible for everything the body does. It is no accident that God refers to the Lord Jesus as the head of his body. So that the head of the body, the Lord Jesus, has taken responsibility for everything that the body does, good and bad. Hmm? God to say, oh, if you see any good thing in me, it's God. Why are not we also willing to agree with the word of God and say, if you say any, see any evil thing in me? That's God's too. That's the only way you'll get to heaven. God in the person of His Son has taken full responsibility and full guilt for all of your sin. 
And when you stand before the judge, the judge is taking full responsibility and full guilt for all of your sin. Are you all skeptical of that? Well, beloved, that's why it's called good news, you see. Nothing less than that will do. Nothing more than that is necessary. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. And verse 21. He who knew no sin... Oh, he did? He did? Honest? My, that's so hard to believe. He became sin for us. Not just took sin on him, he became the guilty party. God view him, viewed him that day on the tree as the one who did those deeds which you did and haven't done yet, for that matter. That's another problem we have with getting it into our heads that God has already forgiven us for what we haven't done yet. Have a hard time with that too, don't we? You say, well, I haven't done it yet. Well, you weren't even born when he died. How do you handle that then? You were 2,000 years later coming along. Do we have any difficulty with God knowing what's coming? Then we're in trouble if we do. So God has already charged His Son guilty of all that you ever have, are, or will do. He is not imputing your trespasses unto you. He has imputed to him, to them to His Son. So, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Which is another thing we really don't believe. That we are as righteous as God Himself. Doesn't that sound reproachful? Hmm? I'm trying. Yeah, but see, all of your trying won't work, Betty. The further you try, the behinder you get. If righteousness had come by the law, then Christ died in vain. There was no reason for him to die, Paul said. Hmm? You're preempting another part of this study again, this course again, but I'll tell you. And then I'll tell you again when I get there because repetition is the price of knowledge. You know, I, I really, I got to say this. <clears throat> there is this thing in our flesh that is just determined that God has done so much for us that we got to deserve it. He's done so much for me, I must do this for Him. You know, it, it's such a backward movement from the grace of God. In the first man, Adam, we have a free will. We are called free moral agents. Yes? You know what an agent is? Oh, yes. An agent is somebody who acts on the behalf of another. We are free moral agents. We are every one of us working on the behalf of somebody else. And in the first man, Adam, we are working on the behalf of the usurper authority, the devil. And you can do anything you want to here. Right? You can do absolutely anything you want to. You do good things and you do bad things. Is that agreed? Do lost people do bad things? Do lost people do good things? Uh-huh, they do. As a matter of fact, they put a lot of believers shame in terms of works. Truth. A lot of them are a lot more honest than a lot of believers. There are a lot of very honest people going to end up in hell while very dishonest people are going to end up in heaven. Good people go to hell. Bad people go to heaven. There are a lot of people here then who do very nice things. But none of those nice things that they do here will ever get them out of there. Is that truth? Titus 3, 5, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Now, if I couldn't be saved by my works, 
How come I think I stay saved by my works? It's this strange enigma there, you see. It doesn't make any sense. But we think there's some responsibility upon us now to stay righteous since God's made us righteous. Poppycock. All right, by the same token then, in the last Adam, believers, those born of the Spirit, may do good things and bad things. Yes? Mm -hmm. All right. But just as here, none of the good things they could do could get them out of the first man, Adam, which is condemnation and death. So also, in the last Adam, none of the bad things they do will ever get them out of the last Adam, which is life and righteousness and peace. Justification in Christ. You follow? Now, what got me from here to here? Because I just thought it was a good thing and I chose it. <laughs> oh, no. You had to die to be born again. New birth is not forgiveness. We must get that out of our heads. New birth is not forgiveness. New birth is resurrection life. There were a lot of people in the Old Testament. None of the people in the Old Testament were ever born again. Abraham was not born again. Isaac was not born again. David was not born again. John the Baptist was not born again. But did he go to heaven? New birth belongs to the church of Jesus Christ from Pentecost onward. It is resurrection life. I am born of the Spirit who was sent on the day of Pentecost. John chapter 7. The Holy Spirit was not yet given for that Jesus was not yet glorified. You follow? You're going to get all this again when we come to it. But I have to answer the question now. So, here is the believer then doing all of his good things and they are not improving him one bit because his standing in the presence of God is absolutely righteous. You see? As God is. You must make the distinction in your understanding between my standing, which is what I am before God, and i got to leave this here, and my state, which is what I am in my behavior. And the purpose of my growing in grace and in knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is to bring my state up to my standing. But it won't make you one bit more righteous. You are as righteous right now by the blood of His Son as you'll ever be. You'll never be any more righteous than the blood of Christ can make you. Oh, it is God that worketh in you, both the will and the do of His good pleasure. You see? Ah, uh -huh. that's a good word. Yes. We yield to what God is doing. You obey God. He gives the Holy Spirit to them to obey Him. So in that sense, there is a work, but in the words of the prophet Isaiah, Lord, Thou hast wrought all our works in us. Um, i got to stop this somewhere. So... Or I'll be reversing the order of my pursuits here, you know. <laughs> no, I think that's worthwhile anyhow to state at this point. It is important for us to understand that our will, I'm going to go ahead and say this, and you can chew on it, and me too if you want to until we get there. But in Romans chapter 9, you go ahead and note this. I believe it's verse 14. But you can check that. Paul says, Therefore it is not of him that willeth, nor him that runneth, but God that showeth mercy. You are not saved because you will to be saved. You're saved because God wants you saved. That's the only reason. Think on that a while. I'll give you a few other verses to cogitate in that connection when we get there. <clears throat> Hebrews 9, uh, I'm sorry, Romans 9.14 It is God, I'm sorry, it is not of him that willeth, nor him that runneth, but God that showeth mercy. Verse 16, sorry. Verse 16. All right, let's take a break. Thank you, brother. I'm ready for one. Works and the law. Now, we don't have time to go through all these verses, but I'd like for you to copy them, please. 
And I'll just make some references while you're copying them. Can you listen and write too? You really can't, but I'm going to do that. You, know, you can't do two things at once. If you don't believe that, try sometime coming up here to this chalkboard and, and singing uh, the Star Spangled Banner and writing Mary Had a Little Lamb, and you'll find out you can't do two things at once. But while you're writing anyhow, the priesthood under the Old Covenant was a priesthood which was not permitted to continue by reason of death. Uh, Aaron and his sons all died. And it notes then an unfinished work. Just as we said earlier, the priest had no place to sit down. But under the New Covenant, the Lord Jesus has a continuing priesthood because He ever lives. And He has therefore sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. And I've cited these verses as just uh, a few of many that establish that. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 16 reflects this. I've noted this is 16a and 16b. First half of the verse, last half of the verse if you're not familiar with that sort of thing. Who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment. That's under the old covenant, but after the power of an endless life. So he ever liveth to make intercession for all those that will come unto God by him. So much for the priesthood. And of course, the high priesthood office belongs to the Lord Jesus and each believer now is a priest unto God, the Apostle Peter tells us. So we function in a priesthood before the Lord, and as priests before the Lord, we also have an offering to bring. Yes? So the offering under the Old Covenant could not take away sin, Hebrews 9, 7, and 9, among others. But the offering of the, under the New Covenant, uh, He has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Uh, I don't know. I did not write this on the board. Would you be interested in the offerings which the believer brings? This is separate from our lesson, but um, let me run them by you very quickly, may I? There are seven offerings which the believer brings before the Lord under the new covenant. These are offerings based on a finished work or sacrifices, if you want to call them that. The offering is the thing offered. The sacrifice is the act of doing it. The first one, the sacrifice of faith, Philippians 2.17 Sacrifice of faith, Philippians 2.17. The second, the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Just run these down quickly if you would. You can go back and do something more with them later if you want. Thanksgiving, Colossians 4.2. And there are several Old Testament verses, Psalm 107.22. The third, the sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13.15 Jeremiah 17.26 and on you can go with that. 17.26 Jeremiah The fourth sacrifice of joy That's interesting, isn't it? Did you know that your joy in the presence of the Lord satisfies His heart? It feeds His appetite. That's what any sacrifice is for, is to satisfy the appetite of God. It's what they were for in the Old Testament. It's what they're for in the New. Sacrifice of joy, Philippians 2.17. Philippians 2.17. And 2 Corinthians 1.14. 2 Corinthians 1.14. Want an Old Testament reference? Psalm 27.6. Psalm 27.6. The, the, uh, the fifth... The sacrifice of good works. 
By the way, when we're talking about works a little bit ago, there's a difference between dead works and good works. Yes? Dead works are works done under the law because you have to or because you feel you uh, owe this responsibility to God. That's a dead work. On the other hand, a good work is what's wrought by the Spirit through faith. Now, they might be the same work. You follow that? It might be identically the same thing. It is the reason for which it is done that becomes important. And if you're doing it in order to get God glad with you, it's a dead work. If you're doing it because He's glad with you, it's a work of faith. Hebrews 13, 16. Did I give you that? Good works. Hebrews 13, 16. <clears throat> the sixth, the sacrifice of sharing or giving, if you would, but sharing, I think, is a better word. Sacrifice of sharing. Hebrews 13, 16. And Philippians 4.18. 4.18. Philippians 4.18. Sacrifice of sharing. There are other places in which this is spoken to, but not in those terms of as a sacrifice. Seven, the sacrifice of... Anybody know what the last one is? You all know. The sacrifice of your body. Romans 12.1. Sacrifice of your body. And if you have not given your body to the Lord, then all the rest of them don't amount to a hill of beans. As Paul, uh, Romans 12.1. Paul said that they first of all gave their own selves to the Lord. 12.1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now that's the seven offerings or sacrifices which the believer brings before God. There is no sacrifice of expiation which the believer brings. No sacrifice that you bring is intended to get God glad with you. Jesus Christ has already done that. What you are bringing now, you are bringing out of the wealth which God has given to you. And it is a kind of reciprocal thing. God gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. And as uh, you give the bread that's harvested back to Him, He gives more seed to you. And that is a kind of... Uh, cycle which the Lord establishes. Okay. Any other questions about that? Yes, on Hebrews, I mean, sorry, in the priesthood, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12, this passage I want to cite. First of all, let me read uh, uh, Hebrews 8, 7. Uh, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then uh, should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, that's a quote from Jeremiah 31, which is the great prophecy of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31. Now, notice the character of the new covenant. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continue not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. It's a kind of covenant that even though they don't regard him, he's still going to regard it. I will put my laws into their mind, write them in their hearts. See, here's the advent of the Holy Spirit. They never had that under the old covenant. I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. Did you know that all of you as believers in here already know everything there is to know? Yes, you do. John said so. <laughs> John said so. He said, you have no need that anyone should teach you because you know all things. Because you have an unction from the Holy One that teaches you all things. Well, where do you know all things? Not in your head. In your spirit. Your spirit is already thoroughly educated. 
the whole process of Christian growth is not getting what's in your head into your heart. It's getting what's in your heart into your head. You've heard the expression, we've got to turn head knowledge into heart knowledge. No, 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 no. That is not right. You've got to turn heart knowledge into head knowledge. God is out to give what's in your spirit into your head because it's your head that tells your body what to do. So your spirit commands your soul, commands your body. Um, if people only have information in their head, only in their head, they don't have anything. If they can have, their spirit, have it in their spirit and not in their head and be in right relationship with God, you see, because of that. So God is bringing what's in your spirit because the Holy Spirit is in your spirit and He has taught your spirit, you see, into your soul so that your soul can in turn tell your body what to do. That's what He means. And God set teachers in the body to get what's in your spirit into your soul. That's what they're there for. But you already know all things. Did you ever, uh, just to illustrate, did you ever encounter something that didn't witness to you and you didn't know why it didn't witness to you and you couldn't put your hand on it, but it just wasn't right? And maybe several years later you found out why it wasn't right. You see, that's your spirit refusing to receive something. Amen. Praise the Lord. Yeah. See, it's in your spirit all that time, but now it comes in your soul. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Indeed. That's why Paul said, let your speech be the grace season of salt. Yeah. Because what, it's the difference between the Word of God can be ministered in the letter or in the Spirit, and it's the same Word. But the letter will kill, but the Spirit will give life. It's the same Word. It's like the Pharisees ministered the Word, but they killed everybody with it. Jesus came in the same Word, ministered life. That's why they said of Him, never man spake like this man. Yeah, marvelous. Oh, that's one of the most beautiful expressions in Scripture. Never man spake like this man. Yes, ma'am. Uh, what about when someone is listening, but they turn you off? They're listening to someone with the Spirit. What causes them to turn off listening and wanting to hear someone that has good words, even if they're a Christian? Yeah, no, I think I missed you there. Uh, so, someone is listening to you. You're talking to someone, and they turn you off, you mean, when Something you're talking? Like, sometimes I try to play uh, tape. Mm-hmm. Well, just any number of things. Uh, they may not like the way I said it. <laughs> uh, the, the really, there are just any number of things. They may not, uh, their traditional background may reject what's being said. I find that quite frequently. I encounter that everywhere I go. That the traditional background of believer is, uh, is to reject grace. And, uh, and I, I am a minister of grace. I didn't volunteer for that. That's just where I ended up. And the background of most believers is very legalistic. You know, we've got to earn it if we're going to get there. And even believers who believe they're going to get there, for sure, still believe they've got to earn it if they're going to get there. I mean, if I may say this, you all who are Baptists, forgive me for saying this, but you ask the average Baptist if he's going to go to heaven, he'll say, well, I'm doing the best I can. Now, that's in total contradiction to his theology. Total contradiction. But there is that thing in us that believes we've got to earn it. And uh, I get turned off an awful lot because of that. The comment I made a little earlier, I know I uh, uh, fixed the lady up so she won't listen to a thing I've got to say anymore, that good people go to hell and bad people go to heaven. But it's the truth, nonetheless. The uh, uh, sweet thing to me is, though, that I've, I've found this to be oh so uh, refreshingly true that uh, the people of God ultimately hear the voice of God. And uh, Jesus said, uh, uh, if they heard me, they'll hear you. 
and ultimately they hear the voice of God. I remember a dear saint in Florida one time, a friend of mine, was, as a matter of fact, it was his mother-in-law, and he was uh, dealing with a subject which I won't even bother to pursue right now, but she was back in the back of the meeting just pitching her head like a mule. I'm telling you, she was so upset with him, and she came from a very legalistic background, Salvation Army to be exact. And uh, she just flat would not receive that, and her explanation was, that isn't so because it couldn't be. Where's the biblical foundation in that, you know? And I had an aunt that said the same thing to me one time. She said, Oh, Keith, I had just gotten saved. And she was so thrilled. And she'd been a believer for years and years. She gave me my first Bible, as a matter of fact, which promptly was placed away on the shelf, never to be seen again. You know? And, uh, and uh, you know, sometimes I think I may have that dear lady to thank uh, for the intercession uh, that uh, produced birth in me. But in any case, um, I stopped and visited her one time when I was traveling through Virginia, coming from North Dakota to Florida. And, and just stopped real quickly to see her. And, and uh, she said, Oh, Keith, now be sure to stay faithful. Oh, stay faithful, Keith. Some people believe that you can just go to heaven whatever you do, but oh, Keith, stay faithful. That just couldn't be true because... Uh, no, that just isn't true because it couldn't be. And she kissed me and I left. Well, bless her dear heart. You know, uh, that is a, such a tragic position that people have taken hold of, so totally foreign to the revelation of Scripture but you see, there's that thing working in the flesh of man which is not subject to the law of God and neither indeed can be that absolutely rejects the idea that God might take somebody to heaven just purely on the basis of his own merit, not the man's. We don't want to believe that. But the fact of the matter is, the gospel message, that's why it's called gospel. Gospel is what now? Good news. It's called gospel because God is doing for me something which I could not and would not do for myself. There is no avenue of redemption apart from God working the whole thing in my behalf. And uh, I mentioned to the class last night since I've come this far, I don't really have any problem, and this has turned a few people off from time to time too, I don't really have any problem with saying to the people of God, just go on and do whatever you want. I have no problem with that. Because one of two things is going to be made manifest. Either that they do have a heart after God and they will not willingly or knowingly do anything to offend the Lord or two, they will say, well, if that's the case, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry, for I'm going to heaven anyhow, and they manifest the wickedness of their heart. Hmm? Is that true? That's what John meant when he said, he that's born of God sinneth not. The word doesn't mean that he never commits sin. It means he does not pursue sin as a course of action. And that manifests his character. And I have no problem with just telling the people of God, I'll tell you, just go on out here and do whatever you want. And one dear saint over there in Kerrville she said, oh, it just sounds like he's saying, go out of here and we can do as we really please. And, and I didn't hear it. Somebody else heard it and they came and told me, I wish I'd been there. I said, that's exactly what I'm saying. Just go on out and do as you please. Are you going to rob a bank? Well, of course I wouldn't rob a bank. Well, I'm not worried about you robbing a bank then. I'm not really concerned in the least about a believer who has tasted of grace. For the, for the grace of God uh, hath appeared unto all men that bring us salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And anyone who testifies to have tasted of the grace of God and wants to live promiscuously is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Yes, ma'am. You're going to say something. I'm just trying to think of that. What's the book after Proverbs? Uh, the Ecclesiastes. Yeah, Yeah. Love God and keep His commandments. So this is the whole duty of man. That's right. And enjoy what God is giving you. Uh, you know, 
Yeah, the, th- the thing about it is that uh, God has put us in a position under the new covenant to walk as sons. This is another one of our segments we'll deal with, but he's, he's put us in a position to walk as sons. And a son does the will of the Father because he wants to. That's as opposed to a child. A child does the will of the Father because he has to. But a son does the will of the Father because he wants to. And God has brought us into the position of sons. They served the Lord under the old covenant because they had to. If they didn't, God zapped them. Under the new covenant, we do it because we want to. That's the characteristic of a child of God. Of a son of God, I'm sorry, you see. Um, so I quoted a, moment, a verse a moment ago. It's God, well, therefore work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you, both the will and do of his good pleasure. And we will not believe that God is working in us, will we? I used to believe for the first several years of my Christian life that if I wanted to do it, it had to be evil. Just because I wanted to do it. <laughs> and I've come to realize that it just might be God in me wanting to do it. And so I can say with real confidence, go do what you want. You might find out it's the Lord. Yes, ma'am. But isn't it because of the Holy Spirit in us that makes the difference? Oh, yes. The come? Yes, God working in you. There you are. It's the obedience that you desire to be obedient. Well, yes. It's a heart after God. But See, a person that doesn't have that has a difficulty. He's a child. Yeah. He's a child. You can't correct immorality by law. You can give direction and truth by law, but you can't correct immorality by law because of... The, if the fellow is a child of God, he doesn't want to sin against the Lord anyhow. But he might do it. Not because he wanted to, but he didn't have the machinery to avoid it. You see? And that's what the work of the Spirit does. It begins to change me. But the, the, uh, the child of God is in no way brought in to a better relationship with the Lord or with a pure, more pure walk by law. Because he's going to walk with the Lord best he can anyhow. Law isn't going to prove that. That's why we'll put rails on baby beds if you'll forgive the repetition. Rails are on baby beds keep babies from falling out of bed. But hopefully after a while you don't take the rails off. We have learned to stay in bed. You see? And a lot of believers are 40 years old in the Lord and still got rails in their baby beds. This law, that law, you know, this do, don't do that, do do this. As I mentioned to a class last night, you know, so we got all of our rules that we've set down. You know, whether it's the law of God or our law, law is law. And if there had been a law given that would have brought righteousness, Paul said then verily righteousness would have been by law. We're on your nickel, saints. Um, well, I'm going to go ahead and finish it now. Um, the, uh, the rules we set down, some of them are just absolutely, you know, they describe a fence post in West Texas. Don't run around with another man's wife. Don't play checkers in Largo, Florida, in an alley. Uh, don't bowl in California. Don't play pool in Florida. Uh, don't play canasta in Florida. Uh, don't play poker anywhere. And on we go with all of these rules. Uh, it is not necessary for me to go home to my wife and give her a set of rules as to how she's to behave at all. Because I am absolutely confident that my wife is going to behave herself in such a manner so as to please me. And if any way she does otherwise, she knows I'm not going to come down on her with a club. You know why she knows that? Because she knows I love her. And if she needs correction, I'll correct her. But she does not feel threatened by that correction because she understands that my purpose is toward her and not against her. You'll follow me? All right, now God is dealing with the church in exactly the same way. Exactly the same way. And God has released me to walk as a son and he has committed responsibility to the church. And he says, there you are now, go do it whatever way you want. i got a whole long lesson. It takes 45 minutes to teach this. And I'm not going to start on it right now, but I'm going to throw part of it out. 
And I, I can't let this thing drop, so if, if I've got to bring up the tail end of this later on, did you all write this down? Probably write it down before you leave here, anyhow. Um, just, to, just to give you an example of this, as I said a moment ago, the characteristic of a son is that he is released to do the will of the father. If you'll permit a personal illustration, I worked for my dad when I was in high school. He was a building contractor before he retired. And when I first worked for my dad, he told me everything to do. He said, Keith, now I want you to go mix up mud because we're going to lay blocks. And I want you to put so many shovels of sand with so many shovels of cement. And I want you to mix it for so long and put so much water in it and on and on, you know, like this, all the details. And if you see any boards laying around with nails in it, I want you to knock all the nails out of the boards. I want any nails lay or boards laying around on the job with nails in it, etc. And God always, or my dad always had to tell me everything that I had to do. But after I'd worked for him for about three years, he didn't have to do that. I knew that if I saw a board laying around with nails in it, I better knock them out. Because he wanted them out. And if he found them laying around and I hadn't knocked them out, he knew I should have done it and I was going to get chastened. Do you see? That's exactly how God deals with us. He commits to us responsibility. A servant doesn't know what his Lord does. He said, that's why I've called you friends. My relationship now is that of a son. Friend is a covenant relationship. The word friend in the Scripture speaks to covenant relationship. I mentioned that to you in our first class, I think. When God called Abraham a friend, he was acknowledging the fact that he was in covenant with him. When Jesus called us friends, he was acknowledging the fact that he was in covenant with us. All right, on with this. Have you observed how the Apostle Paul wrote, or how he ministered, I'm sorry, Paul did what he wanted? Uh, if Paul was going to go from one town to another town, he didn't stop and have a four-day prayer meeting before he left for the next town. He just went where he wanted to go. And when he uh, started out toward Asia, the Spirit of the Lord came along and said, Paul, I'm going to Asia. Now, if that had been us, we'd have stopped and had another three-day prayer meeting. Oh, bless God, where do you want me to go, Lord? Hmm? Yes, we would have. Where do you want me to go, Lord? And God would have probably said something like this. I don't care where you go, just don't go to Asia. Go anywhere you want, but don't go to Asia. He went on down to Bithynia, you remember? I'm not Bithynia. That was the next one. Um, to uh, Troas and, uh, and Lycia, I believe. And he finally started going to Bithynia and the Spirit of the Lord came again and said, now Paul, don't go to Bithynia. Where do you want to go? I don't care where you go, just don't go to Bithynia. Anywhere you want. And that was the manner in which Paul ministered. Uh, now, let me illustrate. Repetitions, price, knowledge, all right? Suppose I get a telephone call while I'm gone now. I'll get home tomorrow afternoon sometime. And suppose I get a telephone call while I'm gone from, from Big Spring and from Roscoe and from San Angelo and all of them want me to come on September the 22nd at 7 o'clock. And I get back home. And Vaughn says, here, you got these three calls. And so I say, uh-oh, the devil's trying to throw in a ringer. I'm going to get the perfect mind of God. Hmm? Isn't that what we do? You know, if I may say parenthetically, quite frequently, our praying to get the mind of the Lord is just so we can lend some spiritual uh, correctness to doing what we know we're going to do anyhow. And so I say... I say, I'm going to get the mind of the Lord, and so I pray. You know, and I pray for two or three days, and I don't get anything. You know, which one do I go to? I so I say, I'm really going to get a hold of God. I'm going to fast. So I fast for three days, and all I get is hungry. And at the end of the three days, I say, Lord, where in the world is that? I've got to have a word from you. I can't go everywhere. And the Lord finally says, all right, then, go to San Angelo. Hallelujah. I finally got the perfect mind of God. And then God says, no, you don't. You had the perfect mind of God. You could have gone to any one of the three you wanted and I would have blessed it. But since you want to behave like a child, go to San Angelo. Are you hearing me? And that is exactly how God deals with us. He has released us to move in the liberty of sons. And the liberty of a son is to make a decision on the behalf of the Father with the interest of the Father at heart. 
And Paul tells us in Philippians, I just quoted the scripture, let me quote that again if I may, for it is God that works in you to will, hmm? to will and to do of his good pleasure. And in Philippians chapter 3, great book on leadership, beloved. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, as many of you as be perfect, that is mature, sons, grown up, be thus minded and Verse 15, if in any way you be otherwise minded, God will reveal this to you. Isn't that wonderful? So you just start out. And there we are sitting in front of a green light waiting for it to turn red. And God says go. So you go. And the prophet Isaiah said, you will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. What's the rest of the verse? That's all we usually quote, isn't it? Well, the rest of the verse is, when ye turn to the right hand or to the left. God isn't going to give you direction until you start to go the wrong way. And when you start to go the wrong way or when you fail to go the right way, then God will give you direction. But in the meantime, just keep going. Everything's all right. All right, one other illustration. We're running out of time. Hmm. Uh, suppose I'm going somewhere with my wife. My wife is driving. And we start out on this trip. Suppose we're going down to Houston. I teach in Houston on Wednesday night and, and she's been there several times with me. And suppose we're going down to Houston now. And uh, I've decided in the meantime that there's a little better route to get there. And so there we go, and she's driving. Well, when she leaves the driveway, I don't say, now, honey, when you get to the end of our driveway, turn left. <laughs> you know why I don't tell that? Because she knows turn left. See, she has learned that by experience, by association, she has learned that. There are th some things we know from the Lord, don't we? Huh? Yes? few, anyhow. And she goes down the road. And we are conversing. We aren't conversing about the direction in which we are going. We are fellowshipping and who knows what. And we may quit talking altogether. It's just adequate to have her there. That's sufficient. And as we drive onward down the highway, if she starts to go past the turn, which I feel like is a better way, I'll tell her, honey, up here, turn left. And after she turns left, I don't keep saying to her, now, honey, you're going straight. That's right. You're doing right, honey. Keep going down that road. That's correct, honey. Now, be careful. There's a corner coming up. We're going to... I don't say anything to her until the time comes. We're just talking about anything and everything, about the house, about the birds, about the Lord, about the grass, about anything. And we are having a marvelous time just being together. And I won't say anything to her till we get there unless I want her to do something different. You follow? Mm -hmm. That is precisely the manner in which the Lord is dealing with us. Mm -hmm. He has released me to do the desire of my heart. Yes, ma'am. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God... They are the sons of God. That is exactly what that means. A child is led by precept, but a son is led by the Spirit. And being led by the Spirit is not a loud voice coming blasting out of the blue saying, do this. Being led by the Spirit is doing the desire of your heart, having the interest of the Father in mind. Do you see? That's why Paul says, happy is that man that condemneth not himself for the thing which he alloweth. I'll tell you, it took me a long time to learn that. Well, I was going to illustrate, but I won't get into that. Anyhow. It, it is the, the precept. The, hmm? Well, it's such a trite thing. Well, anyhow, all right, I will. When I first took my church, you know, far as I pastored for two years before I got married, and I, I bought a house. And, and when I bought the house, it didn't have much furniture in it. It had a little in it, and I bought it first. But it had enough in it to live in. But I wanted a lamp. And I wasn't getting very much money then. And, and, I, and so I went down to a used, no, no, a, a, a damaged freight furniture place and I bought a lamp for $7 and I brought it back and I set it on and I plugged it in. I even had to fix a plug. The thing wouldn't work. And I set it on and, and it was a pretty little lamp and all of a sudden my heart smote me. Oh my, I didn't need to spend the money on that lamp. And I come under the awfulest condemnation for buying that lamp. 
And I was reading in Romans here shortly thereafter, and the Lord smote me, you know, in chapter 15. Happy is that man, who, 14, happy is that man who condemneth not himself in the thing which he alloweth. And that was one of my first lessons in walking as a son. Very simple little thing. But I learned that God didn't care what I bought. You all out there? He just couldn't care less what I bought. He is going to release me to be a son, and if I start to do something that's inconsistent with his purpose, he'll check me by his spirit. And you know, I might go on and do it anyhow. And if I do, he'll chasten me. You notice that with the Apostle Paul? God told him not to go to Asia, and he didn't go, because he didn't care that much about Asia. Oh, he had a burden for it, but it wasn't that kind of thing. And, and he wanted to go to Bithynia, and God told him not to go to Bithynia, and he didn't go, because he didn't. But God told him not to go to Jerusalem, and he went. And it's the only town in which Paul never got a convert. He ended up in prison. God wanted him in Rome. He had to take a ship to Rome under Roman guard to get there, shipwrecked on the way, marooned on an island, snake bit while he was there, but finally God got him to Rome. He went the hard way, but God got him there. You see? If he'd have just done that in the first place. But I like, I'm so grateful that's in there, you see. Paul, you see, Paul is, uh, God is letting us know that Paul was not a perfect individual in our accepted use of the term. I mean, Paul was a man of like passions as we are. And he blew it. And I'm so grateful he blew it. And I'm so grateful God put it in there. I'm kind of like Norman Grubb, you know. I'm so glad that the Corinthians had all those problems. <laughs> I really am. If they had not had all those problems, then number one, I would not have recognized what the early church was like, which we so laud and failed to see they had worse problems than we do in many cases. And secondly, I wouldn't have had that marvelous epistle if they hadn't had all those problems, you see. But didn't Paul have such a nice Oh, yes, yes, yes. You mean to the people that told him that? Oh, yeah, he said, I'm ready to die at Jerusalem, not just be bound. Yeah, that's very religious, that's right. <laughs> I've, got a, I've got an illustration about being led by the Spirit. Uh, 